The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin. Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. We check in with Democratic presidential nominees Joe Biden, senior geopolitical advisor Samantha Power in an exclusive interview. How would a Biden administration put the United States on the world stage? What role would, would the U.S. play in a Biden administration's geopolitical world? Plus, President Trump talks up need for a full Supreme Court as he casts doubt on the upcoming election. We'll cover the latest on the SCOTUS watch as Washington remembers Ruth Bader Ginsburg today. We're going to have continuing coverage of what Fed officials are saying they need in order, well, the U.S. economy needs in order to get the economy back on track. But first, recently, I sat down with former UN Ambassador Samantha Power for a wide-ranging foreign policy interview. We talked about the European-U.S. alliance and the Trump administration's decision to walk away from the Iran nuclear disarmament deal. I also asked her to talk about the biggest geopolitical policy differences from a Biden administration versus a second-term Trump administration. Take a listen. Well, I wouldn't boil it down to one difference. Uh, I would note, first of all, uh, two core premises that Joe Biden would bring to the presidency. First, a recognition that America's strength abroad stems from our domestic performance. And so much of Biden's platform is about what we do domestically on COVID and the economic recovery in the first instance, but more broadly, to combat racial injustice, inequality. We've got to get our domestic house in order. Uh, that is going to be the source of our competitiveness globally and our leadership globally. But the second premise that Donald Trump does not appear to share is that our fates are fundamentally connected to the fates of people living elsewhere. And in the 21st century, there's no way to build a wall to protect you from pandemics. Uh, it, it, there's no way to build a wall in a globalized economy uh, where our prosperity is linked also to markets uh, internationally. There's no way to build a wall when our families come from all over the world uh, and American citizens are descendants of immigrants or immigrants themselves. So I think what you would see in a Biden administration where there's been uh, very little valuation of alliances under Trump is an effort to really rejuvenate uh, a U.S.-centered alliance system in the world. And again, recognizing that that set of alliances, the community of democracies that exist, those who have shared values, that when we coordinate our actions together, we have way more leverage uh, in peace and security and way more uh, leverage in geoeconomics than we do when we act alone as we have been for, for too long in this administration. 
I want to talk about some of those alliances. Let's start with Europe. How would a Biden administration look to rework some of the not only economic but national security angles to the to the U.S. European alliance? Well, trust between uh, European countries uh, one by one and Europe as a whole, tr the trust of the United States is way down. It has plummeted under Trump in part because things we worked on together, like the Iran nuclear deal, like the Paris Climate Agreement, the United States has walked away from those deals. And so European countries are scratching their heads and saying, but wait, those were in our shared interests, um, but also you gave your word. What does that mean for America's word in the future? Uh, but the other reason that the relationships uh, are in dire straits at the moment is just the kind of gratuitous insults and the kind of extortionist way in which, and very transactional way in which the Trump administration deals with our close allies. So a, a Biden presidency would look uh, to restore trust, to uh, assure not only our allies, but also our rivals uh, that America can be relied upon, that we are a credible nation, that when our uh, president speaks, he tells the truth. When America gives its word, that word uh, can be counted on. And so that both of those dimensions, I think, will be really important uh, to restoring the U.S.-European uh, alliance. To follow up on that point with the Iran nuclear disarmament deal, the administration and Republicans have argued that they were able to bring on board Bahrain, UAE, uh, in order to normalize relations with Israel as a result, in part because of the administration's positions and sanctions against the Iranian regime. Would you agree with that sentiment or, or do you think there were other factors at play? Well, the Trump administration's logic in walking away from the Iran deal was that it would get a better deal. Instead, what we have now is Iran's breakout time uh, to a nuclear weapon uh, dramatically shrunk. Uh, apparently, reports now are that uh, Iran has 10 times uh, the amount of enriched material than it had when uh, Obama-Biden uh, handed the baton uh, to Trump and Pence. Uh, so within the four corners of Iran, I think no one can say uh, that the threat is contained. You have reports this week of Iranian assassination uh, plots vis-a-vis uh, -vis U.S. diplomat, a U.S. diplomat abroad. You have an increase in attacks on American personnel in Iraq uh, by Iranian-backed uh, militia. So uh, things have not gone in a good direction. But again, the, the spillover effects of walking away from that deal go beyond even the four corners of Iran. Um, and, and the fact that uh, when the United States in the future, whether under a Trump administration, a second Trump term, or under a Biden administration, sits down to try to bring other countries together in a multilateral framework, both the, the rogue actors like the Iranian regime that was seeking a nuclear uh, weapon uh, or our allies neither know whether they can count on America's constancy. And so that damage is real. I think as it relates to, to Israel, it's incredibly important uh, that countries at long last uh, recognize Israel. I, this is something I dealt with at the United Nations. Um, mm -hmm. One reason that the UN is seen to be so, so biased uh, against Israel is that the countries that comprise uh, the UN, so many of them uh, have stood on the sidelines and refused uh, to recognize uh, Israel's right to exist. And, and that needs to change urgently. And it's important intrinsically, and it's something I'm sure uh, that President Biden would seek to, to continue that effort at normalization and brokering it. United Nations, the World Health Organization, NATO, so many of these global order uh, institutions, these, these multilateral institutions, these 
uh, alliances. What emphasis would a Biden administration place on these uh, institutions uh, and how would that contrast with what we've seen with the current uh, president? Well, first, just a word about the institutions. They are largely stages on which countries come to pursue their national interests. I mean, I know that's kind of obvious, but sometimes we talk <laughs> about them like they have minds of their own. And so when the United States uh, retreats from participation in those institutions, when it cuts off funding, or when it stands on the sidelines and doesn't build coalitions uh, with our friends in order to have maximum leverage, those institutions are going to perform in ways that are less aligned with U.S. interests and U.S. values. And that's what's happened over the Trump years is as the United States has walked away, China has filled the vacuum, other democracies are kind of wandering around used to U.S. leadership, but not yet uh, asserting themselves or putting themselves uh, forward in coalitions to contest uh, some backsliding on human rights norms, some severe threats to peace and security. So I think what you would see with Biden is just the core recognition that U.S. leadership within international institutions is helpful for advancing U.S. interests. It is not a panacea. China doesn't go away. Uh, Non-democracies or repressive countries who exist in the world and thus exist within the U.N. are still there uh, seeking to, to make the, the international bodies uh, you know, look away from what they're doing inside their borders. I, I mean, it's tough to operate in what amounts to a kind of global scrum. Uh, but the one way to guarantee that U.S. interests are not advanced is to retreat. When you go back in, by contrast, and you continue to play the catalytic role that the U.S. played over much of the last three quarters of a century, then we have the chance, for example, of doing things like ending Ebola outbreaks, securing Iran nuclear deals, securing uh, in, the, in the Paris Agreement, at least a baseline climate agreement. Under a Biden administration, you would see the United States seeking to return to the catalytic role that it played uh, for three quarters of a century, basically since the Second World War. That catalytic role has been incredibly important. That was Samantha Power, the former U.N. ambassador. And you can see more of her interview on our Bloomberg Special Report 2020 Year of Crisis Diplomatic Divide this Friday on Bloomberg Television at 7 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, we check in on the markets. Plus, again, we are following every angle of the Supreme Court nomination process on the United States. I'll give you the calendar and the lay of the land. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Beautiful, beautiful sunny day here in the nation's capital. You're listening to Bloomberg. 99.1. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com. 
This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Reading from my Bloomberg terminal, stocks slumped to an eight-week low amidst warnings from Federal Reserve officials on the need for more stimulus to lift the world's largest economy, ours, from a coronavirus-induced recession. The dollar rallied. S&P 500 closed near the threshold that many investors consider to be a market correction. While the Nasdaq 100 tumbled more than 3%, led by giants Apple Inc. and Amazon.com, Fed Chair Jay Powell, this is what I want to get into, Fed Chair Jay Powell reiterated that there's a long way to go before the economic rebound, which will likely require more support. So it wasn't just Fed Chair Powell, Washington, D.C., that called for more fiscal stimulus, but it was also Vice Chairman Richard Clarida, Governor Randy Quarles, and Regional Chiefs Charles Evans, Loretta Mester, and Eric... Rosengren. So you got all of these Fed officials saying that they need to have more fiscal support. And I, let's just let's hear from from the from the person at the center of the storm, Fed Chair Jay Powell. Here's Fed Chair Jay Powell testifying earlier today in Washington D.C. Here's the Fed Chairman. I do think small businesses um, would benefit from more PPP support, and I think there's probably very wide agreement on that. Joining us now, Ed Mills. He is Washington Policy Analyst and Managing Director at Raymond James in Washington, D.C. Ed, welcome to the program. What happened today in the markets? It looks like they're eyeing what's coming out of the central bank. Kevin, you're right. And I think what they're also eyeing is what's not coming out of Congress. And right now, uh, we are nowhere near a fiscal relief package. Um, We have actually kind of good news today in terms of funding the government uh, for September 30th, so we won't have a government shutdown. But a lot of us were looking at that and saying, all right, finally we can have a catalyst that's going to force negotiators back to the table, get a deal. And what's been so frustrating about this and why the market hadn't really reacted to this until now is that there's a deal to be had. There's right. five or six individual things that everyone agrees to, or at least a majority of House and Senate members agree should be done, but we're not doing it. The market didn't think we would kind of just go home, uh, but right now they're looking at kind of a Supreme Court fight, a, an election looming, and no fiscal stimulus deal, and now are re, you know deciding to reprice what exactly expectations should have been. So I kind of look at it based upon my reporting and emptying out the reporter's notebook, and I look at it this way, that they kick the can down the road to keep the government open until December 11th, all right? So you got the Democratic-controlled House of Representatives. They pass a continuing resolution. They're going to avert a government shutdown, all the drama, until December 11th. That's after the election. That's in the lame duck. That would likely be the first of many opportunities for there to be some type of substantial fiscal support that's passed. It still could come in the next couple of weeks, but really December 11th. Then if you, you it, it's pick your ending, essentially, you know, based upon what happens in the market, based upon what happens in the election, rather, uh, if Republicans uh, get back control of the executive branch and uh, keep the majority in the Senate, there will be less fiscal stimulus in Q1 of next year. But if Democrats get it, there will likely be more fiscal stimulus. But either way, there's going to be more fiscal stimulus. Am I wrong on this, Ed? Or is it, it sounds like the volatility in the markets is over the timetable and not over whether or not it's actually going to happen. 
I think you're correct, and I, I do think that the base case continues to be, you know, there should be something uh, because there is bipartisan support for this. Um, I do think that if there is a re-election of President Trump, we do it in the lame duck. I think there could be some concerns about timing if President Trump is not re-elected, and especially if Democrats don't have their sweep. What happens in that scenario? A Democratic sweep would give you likely the most robust fiscal package, but do you need to overcome a filibuster at that point? Um, and so I think there's a lot of moving parts. We throw in a Supreme Court battle. Um, you know, I, so I do think that the market had thought this was just a, a layup, um, and we're now fully in overtime. And as we think about it, the consumer, which kind of got some support, and we really shored up the consumer balance sheet through at least July, the longer we go, the more concerns we have about their balance sheet, credit issues there, small businesses who ran out of the PPP funding long ago, uh, and if we get a second wave as the temperatures start to drop across this country. See, I think that's brilliant, because I think what Ed just laid out there, folks, is just the size of it. That's what people are trying to figure out is the price tag and the timetable and all the uncertainty around this. It's not like they're going to say, Oh, we don't need this. I mean, even when yesterday we had on the uh, on the program Matt Gates, you know, it doesn't get more conservative than Matt Gates. He's a Republican from Florida, and he's even saying they could pass a bill right now on certain uh, uh, and, and we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars still. I mean, it's not a small chunk of change, right? So, I mean, they're still talking about that. There's agreement on that, even in the ultra conservative wing of the Republican Party. It's just a matter of the timing and 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 what's the confusion and the lack of clarity is coming. Is from all of the headlines and the social feeds as it relates to the volatile presidential election. Ed Mills is on the line. He is a Washington policy analyst and managing director at Raymond James in Washington. You know, I was speaking with uh, our Kriti Gupta uh, throughout the earlier today when I was filling in on balance of power for David Weston about just it's not just the the geopolitics here in Washington, D.C. And, and, and in America, but it's also across the pond because investors are looking at the uncertainty coming out of Europe, and in particular the U.K., that's reimposing some restrictions. How's that weighing on the mind of investors, Ed? I think it is. I mean, I think that we have um, you know, seen a hope that other countries were coming around and were not going to have the second wave. And um, you know, there is this gap between kind of the threat of a second wave and before we can kind of conceivably have a vaccine that is uh, well distributed. Um, but I think probably the question I've gotten the most this week is just kind of, are there some risks out there that we didn't really appreciate it that exist last week? Are, uh, are we going to see some radicalization uh, in some policy offerings? Kind of, you know, what we have been dealing with kind of internationally as we've dealt with Brexit, as we've dealt uh, with Greek debt crises. Uh, we have some known macro events that are coming up, but the kind of outcome of those known macro events are known unknowns at this point. So what do you think is the biggest, biggest unknown that people aren't thinking about, even if it's elsewhere outside of the pandemic? You know, it's, it's a question of do things that seemed radical before become mm. a compromise in the future? Is the middle moving mm. further to the left? Is the middle moving further to the right, depending upon the outcomes? We are getting a lot of questions about uh, whether or not we will have a clear answer on election night or soon thereafter. Does it drag on? And then if there are, is a Democratic sweep, maybe we don't see additional justices added to the Supreme Court. 
but the compromise becomes getting rid of the filibuster, adding D.C., adding Puerto Rico as the 51st and 52nd state, having an agenda that is more aggressive than Biden would be comfortable with prior to what we're about to embark on as an epic fight for the future of the Supreme Court. And I think even beyond that, if that starts to get more normal, just even talking about, for example, a 51st state or whatnot, or dare I say abolishing the Electoral College, which the last Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton has already said she's in favor of, I mean, that that's where things get even more interesting. Uh, but I, speaking of Hillary Clinton, she actually said at the Bloomberg Equality Summit uh, yesterday that she's not in favor, not in favor of expanding the Supreme Court. So it's about to get interesting. And I totally agree. Some of the conversations that folks are having right now, there's some high level officials even just weighing in on the conversation. And it's all about how you frame that conversation. Ed Mills, thank you so much for making the time for me, sir. Thanks, Washington John. policy analyst and managing director at Raymond James in Washington, breaking down what happened in the market today. Coming up, what happened to the Supreme Court? We're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about the policy, politics. They're going to have more judges. Are they? Who knows? We'll talk about it. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. How do we reopen this economy? The latest on how this pandemic is impacting farmers. What does this do for the United States' relationship with China? Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We're responding to this crisis and manufacturers are stepping up like never before. We're looking at 70 candidates for different vaccines. How do we make sure a pandemic of this scale never happens again? This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. President Trump sees a green light on the Supreme Court, but what impact will it have on the presidential election and on down-ballot races? Plus, the Fed wants more fiscal support coming from Washington, D.C. Can they get Washington to reach a deal? We've got a lot to get through. President Trump predicted that the U.S. Supreme Court will decide the outcome of the November election. He argued that the Senate should confirm his nominee to replace the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg to break any tie. This was according to remarks that the president made earlier today at the White House, and it's ignited new new energy, really, lack of a better word, <laughs> into the 2020 presidential race. Joining me now to di dissect the latest comments, Maddie Zuppler, founder of Forward Strategies, senior fellow at the National Taxpayers Union, and former coalitions director for the House Republican Conference, as well as Richard Fowler, nationally syndicated radio show host, and a Fox News contributor. Take a listen, panel, to what President Trump had to say earlier today about the Supreme Court and the election. Here he is. This scam that the Democrats are pulling, it's a scam. 
The scam will be before the United States Supreme Court. And I think having a 4-4 situation is not a good situation. If you get that. That was President Trump, Richard Fowler. So he's saying there's got to be a full bench. I take it Democrats disagree. Um, I, I Listen, I understand the president's urgency to want to have a full bench because he thinks that somehow there's going to be massive voter fraud coming up in the next election, even though there's no facts that point to that. Um, and I think that the American people will understand how to vote by mail. Um, but anyway, I, I digress. I, I think, you know, I guess it's very clear-eyed about the current realities of the Supreme Court. And the current reality is the Republicans have the majority. While they're breaking with their own rule, they do have the majority, and they will likely get a justice on the court. Now, I mean, I, 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 do, I am concerned about this, the White, this White House talking point about we want it to be thorough but rapid because I don't think those things are mutual. I think those things are mutually exclusive. But with that being said, I think you have to be clear-eyed and realizing that Donald Trump will likely, in all from everything that I'm looking at, get a third Supreme Court justice. Maddie Dubler, I mean, it looks like he's seeing the green light, especially as Senator Mitt Romney, a Republican from Utah, says that he's in favor, in favor of having that vote on the Supreme Court justice. Well, and, you know, I don't really think any of this should be too surprising, Kevin, to anyone who's been following along for the last couple of years. What the Senate, what the United <laughs> States Senate has been doing for the past four years is confirming judges non Stop. This has been uh, the number one, one of the number one priorities of the majority leader. And, you know, this has been happening for federal courts across the country. So certainly it would be the case when there is uh, an opportunity to put a new justice forward for the Supreme Court, the United States Senate is going to fill its role in doing so. Um, it's interesting to me uh, I feel like, you know, the last four years have presented a lot of lessons that, uh, 2020 will either demonstrate we've learned them or we haven't. But the one that I think uh, is crucial for, for understanding, particularly for Democrats right now, is how energized conservatives are about the court. Because for the last yep. almost 50 years or so, conservatives across this country have felt that a progressive court has been the last say on things that are life or death important to them. And now that it's starting to change with the opportunity to reshape the court, and understandably progressives are upset about that, but that also energizes conservatives in a way not many other issues do. Well, we talk about this. I mean, that's such an astute point, Maddie Dupler, because we talk about the issue of the Supreme Court, and, and we have to go on the data flow of 2018, right? Because 2018 was after Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court in a contentious nomination process, and Republicans won a net gain of two seats in the U.S. Senate. So in the Senate, the Republicans, where there was, uh, where, where, where the process went through, they won seats. Now, obviously, in the House, Democrats picked up a handful of, uh, more than a handful of seats uh, and turned several suburbs back to blue. So it, it, it really is going to be a very fascinating uh, case study in how this particular this particular nomination process, Richard Fowler, whether or not it's going to help the presidential, because it was split when it goes to when it goes to the Senate and to the House. But if you look at the Senate where the process went through, Republicans picked up two seats. Richard, I think that's a very that's a very you know a very great point of information, and I think it's important for all the viewers at home to understand that as we look at this country, we listeners, also know the they're Democrats. listeners. Listeners, go ahead. Yes. I, you know, sorry. <laughs> We're on radio. I didn't want anyone to think that they were watching me on TV, though. Hey, I'd be open to it, but go ahead. <laughs> um, the listeners Oops. is 
this ideal and and the notion that you know at the end of the day the the demographics of the country are changing and as these demographics change it is going in the favor of more a more diversified senate right if you think about who is what what diversity looks like that's folks like Kamala Harris and Cory Booker, and it also means a more progressive Senate. So I do think that where we're, um, my colleague is right is that Mitch McConnell has been very focused on judges because they know, if you look at this Senate map, the Republicans have a lot of ground that they have to maintain. And as they maintain that ground, they maintain that ground in states that are slowly but surely moving to the left. Think about a state like Arizona, where Martha McSally's in the fight of her life. Current, most recent polls have her down mm. almost 8 to 10 points. Right. right. Same thing in North Carolina with Tom Tillis. He is in a state that was a reliable red state, now has a Democratic governor and could likely Tom Tillis could likely lose his reelection. Iowa poll just came out not too not too long ago that shows that Joni Ernst, a Republican in a very red state, could possibly lose her reelection. The country's beginning to shift, which is why I think you see so much rapid movement for Republicans to fill this seat because they understand that many of the issues that progressives care about are protected by five, four majorities, whether it be the rights for the LGBTQ community to get married, whether it be the trans protection for students, whether it be Brown versus the Board of Education. All of these landmark decisions are protected on five, four decisions. And mark your calendar, right? Because this is really what it comes down to. November 10th or November 11th, right after the election, the Affordable Care Act, Maddie Duppler, something that really motivates Republicans. I would argue that the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare, that that was one of the main issues back in, uh, in, in, in 2016 in terms of the Supreme Court uh, decision on, on the Affordable Care Act. An exit poll suggested health care was, uh, was really, really remarkable. And in fact, Hillary Clinton was asked about the Affordable Care Act at the Bloomberg Equality Summit. Here she is. Take a listen. Having this seat filled... Uh, right now, as opposed to waiting until we know who the president is, could very well mean the end of the Affordable Care Act and the loss of health care for millions of Americans who have suffered from COVID-19. That was former Democratic president, presidential nominee Hillary Clinton. I was speaking earlier today at the, uh, at the Bloomberg Equality Summit. But November 10th, Maddie, is when the Supreme Court could take up another argument on the Affordable Care Act, which is right after, right after the election. So if they want, if you want to have a Supreme Court justice participate in the case ahead of it, they've got to hear opening arguments. And that's why November 10th is just as important as November 3rd and why it could be a motivating issue for Republicans. I love the Bruce Springsteen. It always makes me think, you know who this song makes me think of when I, Marty Shanker in my Bloomberg interview, he was like, what is, what is, who do you listen to, Kev? I said, Marty, Marty Shanker, I listen to Bruce Springsteen. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television 
And for Bloomberg Radio, how can you not be in a good mood on a day like today, right? So much to be grateful for. It's like the perfect fall day in Washington, D.C. You know, I'm outside. I got my iced coffee. You know, it's just it's just such a beautiful day. You almost forget about, oh, I don't know, the pandemic. Maddie Duppler's on the line. Maddie, did you forget about the pandemic today? I have not, but you know what? You gave me an idea. We should do the show outside Ooh. when it's just beautiful. We should get good windscreens, and then we can all I be outside agree. socially distanced and be together doing the show. I, I agree. Christine Barada's like going to be so mad at me for openly <laughs> suggesting no that idea. she's like that's what we have meetings for kevin i'm like uh, richard fowler Sorry, formerly nationally richard fowler nationally syndicated radio show host and fox news contributor uh richard you know on a day like today you got to be grateful am i wrong yes i think you have to be grateful to be alive and be grateful to live you know <laughs> in the united states of america um and i think at the same time you have to sort of also think about where we are as a country. Right? Uh, you I know, I wanted some humor and some brevity, and you just take it right back into politics. All right. Oh, this is where we are. <sighs> All right. All right. I want to talk about the economy because Fed Chair Jay Powell said that there needed to be some more fiscal stimulus and fiscal support uh, coming out of uh, – coming out of the nation's capital. And it's not just, folks, Fed Chair Powell. I mean, one after the other. Vice Chairman Richard Clarida, Randy Quarles, all, a, a host of other uh, Fed governors. I mean, they've all been pressing, and I mean pressing, on Washington, D.C. to get some more fiscal support. We actually have a soundbite from Fed Chair Jay Powell from earlier today. Take a listen to the Fed Chairman. Here he is. I do think small businesses um, would benefit from more PPP support, and I think there's probably very wide agreement on that. So there's wide agreement on it, Maddie, but and even the base Democrats are agreeing on. But I mean, I, I look at the timetable. I don't think the, I think the earliest really we could get this is the lame duck December 11th, which is of course when the House continuing resolution expires. The the CR deal. Right. So you've got Fed officials today saying that it's not enough for the Federal Reserve to provide massive amounts of liquidity. Congress has to do something. You've got you and me, Kev, for the past six months. Saying yeah. the exact same thing every week, wondering when Congress is going to get it back together. Um, and listen, you know, this is a really tricky time. I think that you can say both things can be true, that the summer has been better economically for the United States than was previously expected and was even previously expected by the Federal Reserve, uh, that the American economy and the resiliency of the American economy has been on full display. That can be true while at the same time acknowledging that we are nowhere near out of the woods yet, both on the public health uncertainties and on the economic pressures that the pandemic has presented. And for Congress to continue to abdicate its responsibility responsibility in addressing those pressures, you know, it gives populists on both sides of the political aisle something to hate. You know, you've got the left who's saying that Congress only cares about the entrenched interests uh, in the United States. And you've got the right saying that Congress, you know, doesn't do, uh, doesn't actually cater to individuals and businesses and the people who actually provide jobs in this country. And both of them are right in this scenario because you had uh, governments that had shut down the economy to contain the virus, which may have been necessary, but as a result, we're now facing uh, a an economy that was otherwise healthy and now really needs a lot of support to get back on its feet. And a lot of the support that was built into the CARES Act is going to be running out this month. September is really do or die for a lot of industries that have been depending on extending support through the fall. You know, Richard, I, I I listen to Maddie, and then I think of the airline industry. 
I think of frozen student loans, student loan debt. All that's expiring at the end of the year. I mean, for folks who think that we're not that, you know, this is the calm before the storm. I mean, the, the, the calendar, the political and the economic calendar are so intertwined at this point. Whether it's the debate on Monday or up until November 3rd or the mail-in ballots or the Supreme Court nomination, you know, you've got a November 10th Supreme Court on the Affordable Care Act. You've got December 11th, then when the, uh, when the funding for the government runs out. And then, of course, the end of the year when the fiscal support for all those industries roll out. I mean, this, this is I, – I remember, you know, you know, we would go to Cap Lounge and we would cover the, the – we would cover the, the shutdowns as if they were monumental, and they were at the time. But what we're about to step into as a country on the fiscal front in this town, remarkable, Richard, remarkable. Uh, remarkable is an understatement, and I think yeah. the, the one thing— It is an understatement. Here, it's hard to even <laughs> characterize it. And, and the one thing that you're missing here, and, and I think my colleague brought it up, and I think she's right to say it, is we're also dealing with coronavirus. Coronavirus has right. not gone away. There is not. I mean, Donald Trump continues to tell us that there's going to be this vaccine on November 3rd. But all the scientists say that seems to be unlikely. And, you know, we also know if we look at our history from the flu, the flu pandemic of 1918, when they saw the second wave was when you overlaid the, the pandemic on top of the generic flu season. And that is where we are getting ready to enter into. So there's so many but, Un- unknown but, here in, but in let me equation. zero in. But let me press you, Richard. Let me let me let me zero in on the on the fact of, of fiscal support and fiscal stimulus because sure. you are really at the intersection of the of the democratic socialists as well as the more centrist Democrats. You talk to to both of those contingencies more than just more than anybody in in this town. What do you think it will take? for there to be some more support on the left, a more unified support to lower that threshold so that there can be fiscal support uh, because the Republicans are saying that they've gone as high as they can go. Can the Democrats go lower to get to more fiscal support? I think that there is room for the Democrats to go lower. I think the biggest sticking point for the Democratic Party uh, and some sensible Republicans is aid to state and local governments. And not just blue state, local, not just blue states, but also red states. Remember, the federal government, as you all know, has the ability to print money. They have the ability to run up deficits. In many states and in many cities, they don't have that same ability. So when we think about as we get into budget cycle for many of these states and these cities, they're looking at the budget and it's not, it's, it's how do we make, how do we get to a zero at the end? How do we balance the budget? And they're going to balance the budget on the backs of educators on the backs of firefighters, on the backs of social workers, on the backs of the people that have been helping as a stopgap mm-hmm. to hold back this pandemic. So we really have to think about, I'm not saying that you have to go all the way up to the Pelosi target, but Republicans really have to sort of come off the table and say, yes, we understand that there has to be some funding given to states yeah. and local governments, or yeah. this could all fall apart. All right, we're going to check in with what's on the panel's radar coming up next. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Kevin Cirilli, I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I love that song by the Eagles. The lyrics are a poem, I'm telling you. Go read those lyrics. Take it easy by the Eagles. And I, and I said to our, to our, uh, our, our colleague who runs the soundboard, Marufla, I said, if we have Governor Jan Brewer on, we've got we've to have that song, Take It Easy. Because back many years ago, when I was an intern at the Arizona Republic, I did a, a piece on Winslow, Arizona, and how that lyric from that song inspired a very small town in Navajo County, Arizona, to come together to create a tourist stop, a tourist stop on the corner, standing on a corner in Winslow, Arizona, to provide some economic, you know, Instagram-worthy, I guess, photographs for, for passerbys off of Route 66. My next guest... Who knows a thing or two about the great state of Arizona? Former governor of the state, Jan Brewer. She's a Republican governor. What? Do you, give me, give me some of your memories of Winslow, Arizona, before we talk politics. Of the Unbelievable! Day. That just brought floods of memories back to me. You know, it was such a small community, and then when they just designated that, I uh, standing on the corner uh, in Winslow, Arizona, it became so popular. But I had relatives that lived in Winslow, Arizona, and they ran the bakery oh. there, the only bakery way back in the olden days. And then they also worked on the railroad because the Union Pacific ran, you know, across the east yep. coast there through through Flagstaff. And it was just a beautiful place. They were up there amongst the mountains and the Native Americans. And that was just a, and still is such a special, special place. Um, you know, and I had no idea you were going to bring that up. But we love Winslow, <laughs> Arizona. Well, and I, my I remember will be it. happy. I remember it so fondly. You know who else had relatives there was uh, Michael Jackson's relatives. The Jackson Five actually spent a summer in in the in the late 1960s. The Jackson Five really polished off their uh, their acts uh, in Winslow, Arizona. And if you've ever seen the Pixar, I know, the, the fact that I know this. Uh, oh, I'm hearing something, Governor. Uh, but uh, me too. What is that? I don't know, Marufa. <laughs> It's not. It's not on my oh, end, Kevin. Okay. It's not on my end. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and in addition to that, uh, if that wasn't enough, the Jackson Five in Winslow, Arizona, they actually it's it's the the, the fictional town in Disney Pixar's Cars is based off of Winslow, Arizona. So I know all of this this stuff based off oh of profile. Oh my goodness! What, you it's are, a cute town. Yeah. You are absolutely. Uh, you've got a lot of background. That's amazing. I did I love not that know state. that. I love that state. All right. I did not know that. All right, Governor, what's I going on with these wildfires? You've got a lot of experience. You know, when you were governor, you oh. had wildfires ravage through Arizona. What should be done? Because the way that it's framed in the mainstream press is, if you, if you, it's the issue of climate change, and everyone else uh, is a denier of climate change. But what? Walk us through how it's more complex than just that 
issue. Well, it is. I mean, we know that our forests, uh, first and foremost, we know that the undergrowth and the, and the not being able to uh, go in there and thin it out causes great distress when you get lit because it's just more fuel for the fire. And, of course, there are pros and cons. I guess people don't think that we need to thin them out. But in the meantime, we're burning up all our forests, you know, and I happen to have been here in, uh, in Arizona during the largest uh, – uh, wildfire, the wallow, uh, and way back, I think it started in, oh, what, in May of 2011, and it just grew and grew, you know, took over New Mexico and uh, Arizona to the tune of about 523,000 acres. I was devastated, and when I went up to the governor's office, the first thing I wanted to do was talk to my emergency medical people and the fire people and to get my hands on it, because I actually, Kevin, grew up in California. So wow. I knew how devastating fires were. I mean, I lived it. I was surrounded by the Angeles Crest and the Google Hills and the San Bernardino, all the Tonga Canyon, all of which is in burning up right now, you know, I mean, just in flames. But um, so I know that the devastation is just horrible. People losing their life, people losing everything that they've ever owned, um, you know, and then after all that happens to them and they have nothing left and their heart is broken, what next? The rains come, and then it's the mudslides and the landslides. It's just terrible. Well, so and, what? Do you, um, so what? What needs to be done? Because it's such a complex issue with the forest management. It's it's so, so complex with uh, public land yeah. use versus private owner land, a privately owned land. What needs to be done? What would clear it up in order to make well, sure that when this happens, it could be alleviated? We need to know that we can be able to sit down. That's what they need to do. We need to know that we should be able to sit down and talk to these people. But everybody on both sides, I might say, they just don't want any compromise. And but when you don't compromise about what it is that you should do, then nothing happens. And then you just go with this recycle, 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 putting a lot of people's lives, I might say, into high danger. I just absolutely, I mean, the death is, it's, it's just bad. But until the environmentalists and the other people on the other side come together, there's not a whole lot you can do. You can educate people. You can close down the campfires. You can close down the highways. You can remind people that sparks, there's one little spark on the highway from a chain or something that you're dragging behind you on a motorcycle, whatever, can start a fire in it, and then it just get just boom, it just blows up. And then you've got a huge, massive, very, very expensive um, issue on your hands, and it's terrible. And then you have to rely on the federal government, FEMA, you know, and DEMA and all those people and other states come in and help you. And water, of course, is always shortage here. So it's a devastating thing for these um, things to happen in, in our country. And if they would sit down, in my opinion, and I'm certainly not an expert, but I can just tell you from personal experience that we need to thin our forest. We need to thin it. We need to get more fire breaks in there. And we need to make people aware every day. It's like um, uh, a real public campaign going on. You know, most people like you are probably familiar with the dangers of it, but we have such a new population all the time because we're growing and growing and growing. People come and they decide they're going to go camping because it's so accessible and so easy and it's so beautiful. They don't yeah. realize yeah. how how things get out of hand so quick, so Governor, quick. 
Governor, it's just it's just completely heartbreaking, and and I think it's a very complex issue, and 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 you did such a great job there in terms of explaining just the complexities of it, and we've been trying to have that conversation on this program as well. I, I want to pivot to presidential politics because Cindy McCain came out and endorsed Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden uh, within the last day. Take a listen to Cindy McCain. Here she is. I'm hoping that I can convince suburban women who are kind of on the fence about things. Uh, to to come with me on this and step step out of their comfort zone, and and join Team Biden. That was Cindy McCain, of course, the the widow of uh, the late Senator John McCain, a Republican from Arizona. I just got my hands on a new poll released today, a Washington Post ABC News poll released earlier today that found 49 percent of Arizona likely voters want Trump, 48 percent back Biden. I need to get your reaction to to Cindy McCain yeah. and also this poll. Go ahead. Well, Cindy McCain, of course, is an old friend. I shouldn't say old friend, but a long-term friend of, of the Bidens. And, you know, Biden was very close to John McCain. But the bottom line is is that if you're a Republican, what they are doing now with the Democratic Party, it is just absolutely the farthest thing from what Republicans want to vote for, or independents, I believe. Who wants to live in a left-wing, fascist, socialist country. And that's what that's where they're headed. That's what they're going. And Joe Biden has bought into all of that. And so it just is ridiculous. And why turn your back on Republican um, um, philosophies uh, when you know that you might not like the way Trump delivers the message, but you like what he's what he has uh, accomplished. I mean, when you look at the economy and the jobs uh, that he has created. It's just unbelievable. And the, and the, the, uh, the border and the illegal immigration. I mean, it's it, it just, it's just unbelievable. We are just so proud. of So you think he's going to win Arizona? Trump. You think Trump's going to hold Arizona and you think you're going to win the Senate seat? Cause it's, it's well, real. I, it's a battleground. I hope that we're going to, it's going to be real tight. It's going to be tight. There's no doubt about it, but we see now that people are reality. Reality is setting in. People All right. realize the difference difference and we're going to get it done we are going to get it done all right gov well if i get back on the campaign trail i want to meet you in winslow and we'll have some uh we'll stand on a corner all right we'll get a picture governor jan brewer former governor of arizona republican i love this i love this song it's one of my pandemic anthems you're listening to bloomberg 991 sound in your own wheels drive you crazy Lighten up while you still can Don't even try to understand Just find a place and play You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Keen's texting me during the show I gotta be focused I gotta be focused I know it Tom, always making me laugh. Tom Keen on Bloomberg Surveillance with the indefatigable crew. Lisa Bravowitz and Jonathan Farrow. I'm telling you, if you you can listen to it cross-platform. Bloomberg Surveillance, It's they're just doing such a great job. I mean, they've always done a great job, but they're just killing it. Uh, my name is Kevin Cerulli. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for uh, Bloomberg Radio. Man, I'm thinking about all of the great food that I had out in Arizona when I when I spent the summer out there. It's gorgeous out there. Love that state. Maddie Dupler's with me, founder of Forward Strategies. Richard Fowler, nationally syndicated radio show host and a Fox News contributor. Have either of you ever been to Arizona? 
Sure have. I'm married to an Arizonan who talks about the food constantly. Oh, it looks so uh, good. And if we could import just like a, a, a one one hundredth of the burritos that they oh. have in Arizona or D.C., you know how much better off people would be here? Oh, I'm telling you. <laughs> I, I never knew that that uh, Mexican food could taste that good. Seriously. Like, it was oh, the so best. Richard Fowler, you ever been there? Beautiful state. I I have. I haven't stayed. can't say that I've stayed long in Arizona, but that just means I have to go back now, doesn't it? <laughs> no. Well, oh, yeah. We had a we had a guest on uh, the other week who told us, who tried to convince us that uh, that Arizona was known for its pizza. I said Arizona is known for many things, not its pizza. <laughs> and I like pizza. But anyway. All right. It's time for my favorite, favorite part of the show. What is on your radar? Richard Fowler, what's on your radar? On my radar tonight is what's taking place in Louisville, Kentucky, and the yes. impact that will have across the yes. country, which is the recent grand jury ruling to indict one of the police officers around uh, in the Breonna Taylor case for sort of you know shooting into the window, but not indicting the two officers, the other two officers who were in the apartment, um, and one of their bullets fatally wounded and killed on Breonna Taylor. Um, So there seems to be protest activity now. Uh, And I do think, you know, what makes this case so interesting um, and why it's on my radar is because the city of Louisville, um, thanks to the Breonna Taylor family, was starting to move in the right direction, right? They were start. They had passed a, a set, a, a, one of the largest settlements in American history. Twelve million dollars. Oh, let me yeah, let's, let's, let's just let's the city earlier this month agreed to pay Taylor's family twelve million dollars and enact a series of reforms to improve relations with the community and prevent future shooting incidents to settle a lawsuit over her death. And the judge set bail for Hankison at fifteen thousand dollars. Go ahead. I, I just we have time. I want to. I want to. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. And I'm glad you brought that up, right? Because the settlement around reform, the reforms are actually the reforms are actually quite powerful. One of those reforms would be to to basically incentivize officers to live in the communities where they work, which is one of the biggest problems, the biggest breakdowns in trust we have. Is that whether for good or for whether good, we know 90% of cops are good, but the idea that the cop goes home to another neighborhood takes away from one would argue their ability to sort of sympathize and empathize with people who live in that community. The second part of the bill would hire, the second part of the reforms would hire more mental health therapists and counselors so that instead of, you know, cops responding to mental health calls, Mm. they would have mental health care professionals who have years of training respond to those calls. Uh, And now, you know, we see that we really do have a larger problem in this Mm. country when it comes to how we deal with policing. Not saying that policing in itself is bad, but the system in which they operate in is in desperate need of reform. In the case of Breonna Taylor, it was a no-knock warrant, which is, I believe, to be a a strong violation of our Constitution. Um, And, uh, you know, I think those are the reforms that we need to make. And I think when you think about community policing, which is what the conversation is happening in Louisville and across the country, community policing simply is just ensuring that police officers afford everybody their constitutional rights and not just the chosen few. You know, I want to... I want to just, you know, note, I mean, that tonight Louisville has a curfew for nine o'clock. I mean, just so the protests that are anticipated in Louisville this evening, uh, no doubt will 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 warrant national uh, uh, attention. Uh, Richard, I appreciate you uh, talking about that, discussing this incredibly important story. Uh, Maddie Dupler, what's on your radar? You know, Kevin, I was going to talk about what I know best, which is economic data, but I don't want to take away from what Richard just said. I think that's just so 
so much more important. Um, as you, as most of you listeners know, I'm from Wisconsin. I spent right. most of the summer in Wisconsin with my family. This was prior to what happened in Kenosha, but it was while what was happening in Minneapolis was going on. Uh, and I think for, I don't want to speak for, you know, everyone from the Midwest, but I think for those of us who are Northerners, we, this is the first time a lot of people are experiencing this conversation. And I think that what Richard just laid out um, is the way that we need to be really scrutinizing the circumstances in front of us. And as you know, the work I do is in coalitions, right? And that's been the really frustrating part to look at what's happening in the country right now as we reckon with this moment in time and the fact that there are people and our brothers and sisters in this country who have not been afforded the same opportunities and rights as some of the rest of us. Um, but let me, let me matter- unpack this. Let me unpack this because Maddie Dupler, when she was on the Hill, she ran coalitions for the House Republican Conference. I mean, she was literally the person who had to find coalitions. You know, I'm looking at uh, a piece of legislation that Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, a Republican from Kentucky, introduced over the summer in June uh, about uh, the, uh, you know, with with regards to what happens uh, to uh, Rihanna Taylor. And I mean, is that potentially an opportunity for Democrats and Republicans to come together on on this? I mean, he's got that. Kevin, legi- it should be. Yeah. It should be because look, I, this Venn diagram, coalitions are Venn diagrams, right? You want to make those circles as concentric as possible, the number of different people you can bring into the fold. And what Richard just laid out is something that conservatives and Republicans and people who consider them center-right should be fully on board with. I mean, this, this, this notion that we talk a lot about qualified immunity, I had this conversation many times over the summer where if you are someone who is a supporter of our first responders and that is a completely defensible position, we should all res- uh, support our first responders, you should support reforms that allow the good ones to do their jobs and the bad ones to be kicked off the force and to not be able to hide behind laws and regulations that make it impossible for the good ones to do their job. I mean, that, that is simplifying a very complex issue, but that to me has been baffling that we have come to a point in our country where people's constitutional rights are daily under duress and people who claim that the Constitution is their motivating political factor can't seem to appreciate that because the political temperature has written, risen so much. So I think that Richard's point about common sense reforms that we're moving forward in Louisville, we need to continue to have that conversation about places where we have started to have that conversation and started to get it right. And where we're recognizing that all of our communities are safer when we work together to find solutions to these Mm -hmm. problems. He's got, I I, I just want to just, I just want to, he's got the justice for Breonna Taylor act. That's Senator Rand Paul, which would ban no knock warrants. Go ahead, Richard. I just wanted to. Uh, I think yeah. Maggie brings such a really good point here. And, I, and the best way I like to describe it is like this. If you, in your community, if you were driving down the street and you saw the bus driver of the school bus going 100 miles an hour with a whole bunch of kids in the back, you would want that bus driver not driving children anymore. And the same goes for if you have an officer who is not following the law and order that is dictated to them in their code of conduct, you don't want that person policing your community. And it really should be a very simple, 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 yeah, they shouldn't be mm. working, they shouldn't be police officers. Mm. And I think we have let the politics okay. of the day 
really Always. get in the way of us preserving the constitutional rights uh, of everyday Americans. Richard Fowler, such an important conversation. Maddie Dupler, such an important conversation. Uh, we're going to have to leave it there uh, for, for tonight. Coming up, much more. We'll have much more on this throughout the week. Uh, and just as a final note, Johnson & Johnson has begun dosing up to 60,000 volunteers in a study of its COVID-19 vaccine. This is the first big U.S. trial of an inoculation that may work after just one shot. So they became the fourth vaccine maker to move its candidate into late-stage human studies. But this would work. This vaccination, the J&J one, would work after one shot. Some optimism. We need it right now. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.